0: But Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Isn't spring lovely? The smells. New Zealand native smells too. Mahoe, Pittosporum, just beautiful. Plant them. Enjoy. Okay, uh, tomorrow night we're continuing with this rundown to... The final blessed end of World War I, what was happening each week with Glenn Harper. It's called Jesus Make It Stop from a poem by Siegfried Sassoon. Next up though, we go to the world of human statistics with Ipsos Research Director Jonathan Dodd, polling from around the world on what people think. The weekend variety wireless. The world of human statistics polled people and the insights that the polling gives us. Jonathan Dodd, a research director from Ipsos, who do this sort of thing. Uh, g'day, Jonathan. G'day, grab. All right. We're talking about um, something called populism, I suppose, is a term, although I am worried that populism is often used to things, uh, used to describe things that a lot of people like that you don't.
1: <laughs> I guess it comes down to the numerical majority. And yeah. I agree, it's probably a pejorative term because there's always the, the assumption that if it's too
0: popular, it must be bad, you know? Yeah, like know. ABBA or the Beatles. Oh, wash your mouth out. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I meant that ironically.
1: I, I must admit I was the president of the anti-ABBA club when I was about seven. I oh, bless like, you. Bless I mean, you. It's, it's good annoyed. to take a
0: stand. Well, I think it's just annoying because
1: all the girls liked it and they didn't like KISS, which is (laughs) far cooler.
0: Okay, now, perceptions. um, We're we're going thoroughly international here. Um, uh, The decline, uh, the strongest in Brazil and South Africa.
1: Well, yeah, it's really interesting when you look at this because, I mean, this all came out of the work two years ago when Brexit was on everybody's lips and Donald Trump came into power and was like, what the hell is going on in the world? And that's when the whole populism thing came out and we worked out that it was very much about going for the, the populist people. It's sort of just a, a different part of nationalism. And part of that is usually, you know, your appetite for somebody like that is reflected in your perceptions of how the world is going and how your country is going. Mm-hmm. So it was quite interesting that of 25 countries, about 44% said they agreed that their country was in decline, particularly, and that's really interesting when you see the themes, Brazil, South Africa, Argentina, you know, Turkey. You read out those ones and you go, yep, no surprises there. Those countries are the countries that feel like um, their countries are in decline. Yeah, especially Brazil
0: at the moment with that guy Lula uh, either in jail or not. I don't know what's going on there, but that's oh, a big oh. political reaction
1: yeah there when you look at the others and i've just been you know even after 10 i've just been talking to a colleague about Peru that we'll get on to later but mm-hmm. interestingly though those proportions while they are the highest countries they are still um less likely to feel that the country's in decline than a, than a couple of years ago so generally we are seeing on average people around the world are thinking things are better than they were um in particular if you're in belgium you know, two years ago, 64% said Belgium was in decline. Now it's 38. Mm. Um, and, of course, you have to look at those countries and how they were dealing with all the immigrants in the refugee crisis a couple of years ago as well. Yeah. You how know, people perceive that because we see that particularly with um, Sweden. Um, Sweden's um, improving in that regard, but decreasing in others. Um, but, yeah, at the other end, when you've got countries like, you know, Germany, much less likely to say the country's in decline. Um, so 38, um, two years ago, 38%, now 25 Chile, 47% last time. Um, no, sorry. <laughs> Germany, 47% last time, 25 Now, so you've got some countries changing, but really interesting Seeing South Korea. Yeah. So, two years ago, seventy three percent said the country' in decline, now it's thirty
0: one. Maybe now, there uh, is some sort of feeling of pacification of the tensions between North and South, no matter well, what you think of Trump or yep. Kim Jong, what's it? Yeah, that, that's what I'm thinking, and, you, and
1: you'll be there's people turning around and the fact that you might be able to go and talk to your relatives that have been you know, yeah. isolated on the other side of the border for 40 years, there's things like that and you realise that things are locking
0: up. And the incredible. champion here is Chile, with only 24% thinking it's going to hell in a handbasket. What are they doing right? They're an outlier there for, for a South American country.
1: Yeah, that's interesting too. When you're thinking, and the same with Germany, because I always wonder about—is it something to do with their past politicians and so mm-hmm. forth? Because we see some questions about these later on. Um, I'm not so up with what's happening to Chile, mate. they're just enjoying
0: cheap beef. <laughs> yeah. All what right. Let's move. Football. We're moving on to uh, the perception that politicians don't care about them.
1: Yeah. People like me. Yeah. And again, that's gone down. So overall, when you're thinking. Of Things are going right. Why are they going right? Are politicians caring more about us? And and I think this is... We, on average, politicians um, have probably got a wake-up call a couple of years ago, and thought, hell, <laughs> people are going for the likes of Trump and, and some, of that, some of the um, unusual ones, and even the Brexit thing was about people feeling alienated and, wow. and not being cared about and so forth. And So they started voting for, for, for themselves and, and not other people, the greater good. So I think politicians, you could argue, probably turned around and realised, well, um, maybe we've got to start actually talking, the, walking the talk about now. So we're getting overall improvements there, which I think is of interest. Um, not a huge improvements, you know, only 5% improved, 64% last time said people the politicians that care about people like me, and it's gone down to fifty-nine. Which
0: isn't huge. So the higher the score here, the worse the perception of politicians. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 So it's gone down a little bit. There aren't any massive changes, which I thought was interesting. Even like in the US, went from sixty-six to sixty-four. Huh. I haven't highlighted too many big changes because always we like to go, "Well, how's the US going?" and those sorts of ones. So then it's like, well, okay, um, maybe it's because they've been liking different types of politicians and stuff like that. Um, and again, we're saying, you know, should politicians be able to say what's on their minds regardless of what anybody thinks? Mm. So you might, it's interesting. You might go, yes, we want honest politicians that are really clear, but when you get one like that, you start realising the problems because in the US, two years ago, on the um, after Trump got into power, 60% were going, yep, should be able to say what's on their minds regardless of what everybody thinks. Two years of Trump later, And they're going, oh, maybe it's not such a good idea. And it's gone down to 48% in the U.S. So it's quite interesting. Um, I'm not trying to make this out as an anti or pro Trump thing, but when you clearly get this in some countries, you can see how people change. Yeah. Um, but in Sweden, you know, Sweden's been going through some big changes because they're actually a very homogenous society and they've been getting a lot more immigrants and has been causing problems.
0: Yep.
1: Uh, you know, we, we think it's all wonderful up there, but it's just wonderful because nobody's been locking the boat. So they have been having challenges. So you're getting, um, I, get, I think, the political correctness and so forth is getting tired of them. They'll be getting more likely to say, quite yep. mostly more likely to go, we want
0: people to... Yes, I think think a degree of political correctness which seemed to be inherent in the Swedish culture kind of blessed them uh, is actually doing real damage and there's a bit of a turnaround there yeah and
1: you know everybody feels fine with that kind of intellectual like oh well, hang on the country's changing the ways i don't like so they're starting. so you can, you can see here like all these things that just reflect to what stage in the political economic cycle a given country's in and what they're going through
2: mm, okay so you can
1: see these things coming through
0: all right it's kind of on the same subject the same country's polled on a leader willing to break <laughs> the rules yeah um funnily enough it's the lowest in germany <laughs> <laughs> thank, you, thank goodness. It's way low, actually, 17%. And the next, it's fresh air to Sweden with 32.
1: Yeah, although, yeah, so again, um, it's, it's Sweden's right down there, but again, they've increased. So they've gone up 10% from that uh, to just in line with what we were saying before. So we're definitely seeing this growth in Sweden of people going, no, actually we want a strong leader that, that can do these things and, and talk and say the unsayable, whereas Germany's just like, nah, we've, we've done that, been there, done that. Um, and the same though, it's interesting though, we can make those jokes about, about um, Germany with its history, but Spain isn't exactly um, innocent when it comes to um, civil war and, and um, fascist leaders and so forth. And they're right up there, and increasingly so. So, two years ago, thirty-five percent of Spaniards said uh, we need a strong leader to willing willing to break the rules, and that's gone up from thirty-five to fifty-eight percent.
0: Yeah, and so again, I suppose one does have to take into account how rubbish the rules are at, as far as the perception goes. Uh, how, how do people uh, perceive the the law? You know, and that's why I am yeah. wondering. if India, with sixty-eight percent wanting a leader to break the rules, maybe the law's rubbish.
1: Yeah, I think they were thinking about rules, being figuratively speaking, rather than oh, okay. literally breaking rules. There's, yeah. there's, there's, changing the law and breaking the law.
3: Okay.
1: Um, and but the thing with Spain, of course, is, and it's interesting, talking about Spain versus Germany. They both had, you know, questionable leaders. Um, but Germany is in, in good economic conditions, so they're going, why do you need somebody to break the rules? What's well, the point, we're doing all right. Whereas Spain, you know, they've been at the economic basket case. So they may, they will be the ones going, well, what we've been having isn't working, so let's change.
0: Okay. Now, politicians with radical ideas, do we like that yeah. idea or not?
1: Yeah yeah and is it too risky to elect political parties or leaders with radical ideas and um yeah peru right up there at 57 percent. so i did my homework because luckily we have a peruvian researcher on staff and then i checked out wikipedia and yeah it's just full of corruption
0: okay
2: Uh,
1: yeah yeah they've had all sorts of corruption they got rid of their president um a few months ago now there's a big debate about whether you should turf out all governmental positions yeah so it's just corruption after corruption and just to reiterate the
0: higher the score here the less um uh risk people see in electing radicals
1: the higher the score they're saying it's the more likely are to say it's too risky right too
0: risky higher the score too risky pardon me
1: yeah yeah so i think in places like peru brazil russia they just know that okay Um, when you get these firebrands coming through without any, um, without any experience, but all these radical ideas, it's like, no, 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 you know, we've had all these these, these people come by and we work out they're all, they're all corrupt and and, and dodgy.
0: Oh, look, Um, you're missing one out and it's the elephant in the room here. I'd love to see the results for Venezuela. (laughs)
1: Venezuela. Um, I don't know if we have an office there. We might do, we're everywhere, but, um, that would be an interesting
0: one. They've nationalised it.
1: (laughs) That's, well, maybe that's, why, maybe that's why the office goes, well, maybe it's too dodgy to release results yeah, there or yeah. something. Not sure about that Yeah. But talking of that, Mexico is essentially nationalized by the U.S. if you talk to certain people. All right. um, and i was looking at that because there's been a lot of stuff coming out about all the Mexican um, politics and politicians basically being in the pocket of the U.S., um, that's sort of wanted to keep the drugs thing going and, and owning a lot of the businesses and mm. so forth there. Um, mm. And that's why we see Mexico right up with, with a lot of these issues.
0: Right. Now, this w- does resonate with uh, a lot of people, I think. your your top three for let's uh, elect a radical person. Great Britain, Sweden and Italy, all around the uh, 25% mark. Yep. Yep, and um, I think it's just because
1: it seems like a good idea at the time. And, and when you say 25%, well, you've got to bear in mind 75% saying no. Yeah. <laughs> so you can always end up with um, with a group of people like that saying, yeah, we, we want those leaders or other people saying we don't. But as we've seen elsewhere, um, they may start questioning it, I mean South Korea's a really interesting one when their leaders are almost you know they're almost um kings in their own right yeah. and Great Britain well I know um you it's just weird there um radical ideas for change for them maybe you know it'd be interesting to see what they said last time yeah. um. But, yeah, the thing with Great Britain, though, is that I have to admit that the research there includes, obviously, Ireland, Wales, um, and Scotland. And when it came to Brexit, they voted very, very differently.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the majority of that of the uh, 28% of Great British people saying it's too risky to elect these political parties. Well, it would be really interesting to see how that splits up with the likes of Scotland and so forth. I imagine mm-hmm. they'll be going, oh, it's not risky, Um
0: Okay, yeah. now, uh, reactions to being strict enough when it comes to crime?
3: Yeah. Do you think authorities in your
1: country are too strict or, or not quite strict enough in terms of crime? <laughs> yes, that's interesting. You have so many people in, like, again, these countries where we worked out, you know, if nobody's happy with the politicians, they're often the corrupt, they, they, they don't think, and so forth. And they're all right up there saying that people aren't strict enough for crime. You know, Peru, South Africa, Mexico, Chile, they're all saying that the authorities um, are not strict enough, which is quite interesting because when you've seen those are the countries where the authorities are the most questionable and where the police force and uh, is often quite questionable, you've got corruption. And I think in that situation, you'd be wanting people to be less strict with crime, I don't know. Maybe they're thinking that it's so corrupt, they've yeah. got to be stricter and people are getting away with it. But. Yeah.
0: And, and look, yeah. Japan here, only 2% think that the country is too strict on crime. That's That'll be all the criminals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and again, it's yeah, yeah, but again, you've got a big group of don't in the middle there. Yeah, of course. Yep. It, you know yep. they've got Japan is really low crime. And again, I think look, this is the issue it comes down to mm. the nature of the crime. So okay. places like Peru, yeah, um, you know, got huge drug crime. South Africa, as I saw, like got you've got higher higher murder rates in South Africa than you've got in some some crime zones, and natural war zones. Yeah. Um, but again, we all know that being strict in crime isn't really the solution. It can just show how um, tired yeah, yeah, of it, people are.
0: That's your talkback classic,
1: though, isn't it? Is
0: it? Are we strict enough on crime? Of course we're not. Damn it.
1: Yeah. So, okay. And it, yeah, so South Africa, they'll be going, well, there's too many folks. Yeah. We're either going to be going, well, they're not strict enough, but the biggest criminals are either the drug lords or yeah. the politicians
0: themselves. Depends what crime, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, we've got a couple of minutes for marketing psychology. Uh, price indicators. This is ahead of uh, the yeah. next polling, which is bird of the year.
1: Um, yeah, price indicators. And this is just something where I keep finding people thinking that price is a due indicator of quality. You get what you pay for, people talk about. And I think it's worth today just alluding to people that price is way more than that. And when they're looking at the price of something, they've got to consider a whole lot of other variables and work work that into it and work that into it. So for example, People tend to think that, hey, if companies just want to sell more, they should reduce the price. And I saw this the other day in a big online discussion with a very expensive retailer of cycle clothing in the UK that's getting rid of a whole lot of these staff. And everybody went on going, well, hey, if they reduce their prices, they'll sell more stuff, which is really simplistic. So you know that you can actually increase sales by putting up your price.
0: Yeah.
1: That's something people are surprised about.
0: Price looks like prestige, yeah
1: exactly indicates prestige
0: if you're really uh, rubbish at something hike up your price it'll make you look seem better <laughs> yeah. then
1: you've got to consider about the perceived extra value and if you remember back when you know when um uh, vinyl records were selling for 10 bucks and cds came it came in at 30 dollars yeah that was crazy. yeah and cds were actually cheaper to make yeah uh, you, had a, you had the perceptions of better quality and greater convenience, so you're charging more. So okay. people have to bear in mind that. Then you got the competitors. If you've got no more no competitors, you can put up your price, yep. and that's the old issue with monopolies, of course. But if your competitors are much more expensive, you could do well by being cheaper, or if they're really expensive, you can go, well, I'll just charge a lot too, and if we're all charging a lot, we can all get away with it.
0: Petrol
1: companies. Um, yep. yep. said Rarity all know about supply and demand. We see that in auctions, of course um and of course how many other people want something um then there's something people often don't think about which is consumer trigger points you know there's often you often find yourself saying oh, five dollars for this or ten dollars that i can't justify spending that much for a certain product. And companies often know that when they really do have to raise prices because of their own manufacturing costs, to raise them above a certain point can often be a real trigger value. So, say we take an item of $5, you know, the difference between going from $4.90 to $4.95 you know, consumers won't notice it, but if you go from like $4.95 to $5.10, oh, yeah, might yeah. only be like a 5 cent difference, 10 cent mm. difference, but it's that psychological point.
0: yeah.
1: And that's when a couple of years ago, we saw a whole lot of companies that reducing product practices, mm. and they realized that, well, if we can't put the price up above a certain point, but we've got to maintain a minimum margin, so reduce their total cost. that it costs to make by reducing pack
0: sizes. That's another way people do things. Okay. Um, Jonathan, we have to up stumps, but uh, it's a comprehensive walkthrough, I think. Um, So Jonathan Ipsos, uh, research Jonathan Dodd of Ipsos, research director. Uh, We're going to bird of the year next, and thank you. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live.
2: Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy.
0: Bird of the Year is underway. It only runs for two weeks, so get out there and vote. Get on your computer. It's easy to find. Just put in bird of the year. It's a forest and bird-based thing. It's been going since, I think, what is it, 2005? Uh, The most glorious year, of course, was the year of the grey warbler, uh, which won hands down in 2007. Oh, what a lovely animal. Here it is again from my backyard. That is the sound of New Zealand. maintain kimberly collins from forest and bird for the update for the midway section the midterms uh, we could say for forest and birds bird of the year hello kimberly hello all right uh let's just talk before we get into the russian hacking and things like that that have uh, beleaguered yet again um the bird of the year let's get the top 10 as it stands
2: yeah okay so the latest results for bird of the year are in number 10, we have the black robin with 881 votes. It's not actually in a robin. It's not a robin. <laughs> it is a robin.
0: No, it's a, it's, um, isn't it a, just a black tomtit or something?
2: No, I'm pretty sure it's in the same um, family as robin, oh, okay. but I could be wrong.
0: Okay, see, fake news comes into this as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. You've got to really watch out for that fake news. We've had a lot of that flying around on social media. Yeah. Um, Lots of smear campaigns in the works, but, right. you know, there's nothing you can expect.
0: Okay, ten, the black, black tom tit. Yep. All right, what's number nine?
2: <laughs> number nine is the blue duck, the fear with 992 votes. Yeah. Number eight is the ruru, the pork, with 1,011 votes.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Number seven is the hehe, the stitch bird, which is actually being backed by Justin Lester, the mayor of Wellington, with 1,087 votes. Yeah. Number six is another garden bird, the fantail, or piwaka waka with 1,129
0: votes. A previous winner?
2: A previous winner, yes. Uh, number five is the takahe, oh. which has uh, got 1,242. Now, um, they've been running a campaign based on being the roundest bird in New Zealand. Uh, and there's been a bit of a battle between them and a couple of others that I'll get to next.
0: Oh, okay, so this is a battle of shapes.
2: It is. It's a battle of shapes. There's been a lot of um, claims that, you know, a certain bird is the roundest in New Zealand. So, number four, we've got last year's winner, the Kea, and that's with 1,256. So, a lot of supporters still keen to see them in the top spot. Mm -hmm. Number three, we've got the Kaki, the black stilt. Now, these are a braided river bird from Canterbury. There are only 132 of them left, and they've got 1,833 votes.
0: They've never really featured previously, to my knowledge, in Bird of the Year. This is a big campaign.
2: It is, yeah. And it's nice to see one of our underbirds, so to speak, doing well in the the competition. Number two, we've got another bird that has won previously, and that's the kākāpō. That's got 2,272 votes. And that's another one that's claiming to be the roundest bird. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, we've got a big thing on Kakapo while you're talking about it um, tomorrow night. We're talking to Alison Balance. Her new, her old book has been revised to bring it up to date. It was about eight years ago it came out. Uh, Rescued from the brink of extinction. She went for that title, uh, Plucked from the brink of extinction. Didn't quite work so well. Um, and also, we've got the. We're devoting an hour, a whole hour to tell. In detail, this, the amazing story of Richard Henry, uh, who was the world's first conservationist, I maintain. And it's one of the most heartbreaking stories you could ever imagine. That's tomorrow night from 11 o'clock. So I've just hijacked your top 10 for a shameless promo. So there you go.
2: <laughs> no, that's fine. I am a big fan of Richard Henry's work. I was actually lucky enough to visit Pigeon Island where he set up the first Translocation of some of those flightless birds. So wow, I you saw friend. where he lived,
0: all by himself. I did. Yeah.
2: yeah, it was a beautiful place. Um, yeah. And we saw the little poner stumps in the ground that marked out the four sort of um, walls of his kakariki
0: pen. Yeah, oh, it's an mm. amazing story of of heartbreak and dedication in equal measures.
2: You know yes, when he, you know when he died,
0: only the postman came to his funeral. That's it.
2: Oh, I know it's tragic. I
0: have tried to find his grave at. Um, uh, Hillsborough Cemetery but it's just impossible. Oh it's not, of course it's not impossible but I tried for hours and couldn't find it but anyway that's by the bye. Alright back, back to what are we down, down to the top two.
2: Yeah so the top two, the um, so Kākāpō in number two and then flying into the first spot is our second place winner from 2017 and that is the Kereru. The Wood Pigeon, and they are a whole 1,000 votes ahead. They have got 3,380 votes at the moment.
0: They're huge, fat doofus, really. That's incredible. The Karen have never, ever won before either.
2: No, it hasn't, it hasn't, and I think it's had a real um, lift, you know, the great Ketterdu account that we've just had um, running for a couple of weeks must have put the wind beneath its wings because mm-hmm. we've seen a lot of support for it online, um, we've had a lot of memes being created, a lot of funny pictures on the internet, so... I think they're really going for the youth vote this year.
0: Yeah, and maybe a salute for Northland as well because they're really struggling up there and uh, I know they're all over the place but um, I always see them as a bit of a marker for the forests of Northland, the the collapse that's happening up there and the kereru plummeting. That's uh, that's an awful thing that's happening. So good luck with the 1080 drops, Doc.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think the kereru is a great symbol for those um, forest collapse stories and yeah, I'm, I'm sure they'll benefit greatly from... 1080
0: drops in the redu- reduction in predators. Yeah. Uh, the keruru does suffer that uh, from the fact that th- this is the keruru call. There's not much to it really, is there? No,
2: but there is that beautiful sound of it going whoosh, 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 whoosh yeah. as it flies
0: over. Yeah, that is its sound. Okay, uh, now let's get on to the scandal that happened this week. Uh, there's been some meddling from Australia, some people wanting a shag.
2: Yes, absolutely. So on Wednesday evening um, we have brought on some independent scrutineers from Dragonfly Data Science in Wellington. So they are watching the votes for unusual spikes and numbers. They're also looking for people using what we call disposable email addresses and on Wednesday night we had then notice 310 dubious votes for the shag Mm. from an IP address in Perth in Australia. So We leapt into action and reversed those pretty quickly, um, and we are continuing to monitor. But, um, yeah, I guess the Australians just really like the shag.
0: I think they just are having a go, because it sounds funny.
2: It does sound funny. It sounds very funny.
0: (laughs) Um, How many votes did they manage to smuggle through at those votes? Are they still there, or have they been yoinked out?
2: No, they managed to get 310 through, yeah. but we have removed them because we can see, um, you know, a graph with all of the votes. And if we see a really sharp increase, we know that something funny has happened.
0: All right. Uh, what are the rules, by the way?
2: The rules are that you can vote once per person. So um, you enter your email address, you receive an email with an activation code, and um, that is how you sort of confirm your vote in the competition
0: I've got about five email addresses, three of them from work. Is that fi- That's five grey warbler votes, isn't it?
2: <laughs> well, look, we would prefer it was one per person, but we do recognise that there are some pretty passionate bird nerds out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's not doing very well, the grey warbler. It's not helping me, stupid bird. Good go- I'm I'm its campaign manager. I've just got the give-ups. It's very hard to win twice.
2: Oh, no doubt. No bird has won twice in 14 years, so... It's a pretty
0: hard thing to achieve. Yeah, and uh, just while we're on the subject, uh, some good news for the kakapo. It looks like a really good breeding season this year.
2: Yes, it looks like the Rimu fruit is going to do very, very well, which is what triggers kākāpō breeding. So they're expecting a huge bumper season of kākāpō chicks, and I'm sure they'll be very, very busy down on those islands.
0: Yeah. Okay, Kimberly Collins from Forest and Bird, thanks for the update. Uh, And I'll just do the top five to remind you. Takahe, kia, kāki, that's black stilt, kākāpō. And number one, the wood pigeon. Uh, okay, kereru, or whatever you want to call it in your local dialect. Um, Kimberly Collins, thank you, and the announcement will be made on Monday next week, right? Not not this That's coming right. Monday, but Monday after.
2: Monday the 15th at 9am, so okay. keep
0: an eye on our website. Okay. And we don't mind saying it's going to be on national radio, isn't it?
2: Yes, it is. At 8.50, it'll be on Morning Report.
0: Yeah, good one. I heard you talking on ZB, and they didn't let you say that. Anyway, good one.
2: (laughs) Good for you, Kimberly.
0: Thank you very much. Get out there and vote. It's a wonderful thing, and I like the plain English that you use as well. Doing okay, not doing okay, doing awfully, or something along those lines. So that's as far as the conservation status goes. Kimberly, all the best, and we'll talk again next week.
2: Thanks.
0: New Zealand is
3: yours. Go there now.
1: Life,
0: the universe and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. There's been a secret, sometimes very beautiful murmur in the New Zealand music world. His name's Rian Sheehan and he'll be joining us on the line very, very shortly. Here's a little sample from something brand new. Soma Dream. the moment on tour presenting is music, and we'll find out how on earth it works, because it's not your average three-piece guitar-based drums affair at all. Rian, is this a sort of realm of music, I recoil really at calling it ambient, uh, because I think it's a bit more than that, but if you cornered the market for this sort of thing? I don't know too many people doing it. I don't think I've cornered the market. There
3: seems to be quite a lot of this music happening. I, I guess it's called, uh, there's lots of terminology and, and uh, genre names for it, but I guess neoclassical or modern classical music seems to be used quite a bit. It's definitely quite popular overseas, I think, in, in the UK and in Europe at the moment. Um, there's some pretty amazing artists releasing music. Uh, but in, in New Zealand, uh, yeah, there are a couple, but yeah, I, mean, I, don't, I don't really think there are many people playing this music live. So... Um, Yeah, so it's interesting.
0: Did you get into this after the last time you listened to a prog rock record or a piece of Brian Eno, or did you go to music school and approach it from that angle?
3: Well, actually, Brian Eno's ambient works have been a huge influence on me and they were in my early life, and also people like Lisa Gerrard, her soundtracks, even Michael Stearns, who did, you know, I remember the first time I saw Baraka, and he scored that with Lisa Gerard and that blew my brain. That was when I kind of decided that that's what I wanted to do, really, back in the early 90s. Yeah.
0: It's fun music to write, I guess. Okay. This new album called The Quiet Divide, it's only a third, isn't it? Does that mean these things take a bit to make until you're happy with them? Actually, this is my fifth album and I've released an EP and uh, quite a few soundtracks and things in
3: between, but my earlier work that was predominantly more electronic, but not entirely, but it had more of an electronic feel to it
0: um can can i make it at least one row up from the back of the class by saying this is the third album of this type
3: oh of course yes yes no you're right i guess yeah yeah but i take the uppercut fair enough earlier on i I found myself pigeonholed into playing and you know when we were touring i was playing a bit overseas and ended up just playing in clubs with a laptop and a midi controller and dance parties and playing late at night and it really wasn't what I wanted to do to be honest Um, and so you know since then I've been writing music which is more orchestral and band orientated but it still has elements of, of what I've done in the past you know electronic and lots of big atmospheres that we recreate in a live environment.
0: What is the live performance like because I would find it hard to imagine or at least I would expect quite a thing really given the nature of the music.
3: So I play like uh, guitar through lots of effects pedals and create these atmospheres. I have Jeff Boyle with me, He's also amazing. he is an amazing guitar player and has been a big influence on me. And he's in a band called Jacob, which is quite well known, probably more well known overseas actually, um, instrumental kind of rock band. And also Ed Zicola who's on synths and um, uh, Steve Bremner on drums. My wife, Rashi, actually plays the piano in the live show and she played some piano on the album. Marika Hodgson on bass, percussionist Grant Myhill, Anna Edgington who's joining us, Um, she sings these beautiful ethereal vocals, and then we have a string section as well, like we played in Dunedin on the weekend and we had a large string section there, some of the towns we have smaller string sections, which is great because it makes it more intimate. We're playing in Wellington on the 12th of October and we have a kind of medium sized string section, so it's, yeah, it's fun, I mean there's about 25 people on stage I think at the Wellington show.
0: How do you rehearse yeah. it? Is this the sort of affair where you would actually say, I've got to go to band practice? Yeah, we've had some serious rehearsals. The string player, The string parts are written, so yeah. we
3: have a good run-through with the string players before the show, and they usually nail it because they just that's what they do, and mm. they're, they're good at doing that. Um, but the band's pretty well rehearsed, and Dunedin was our first gig, and that seemed to be a pretty good way to rehearse in front of an audience.
0: Okay, it's um. interesting you mention Jacob. There are some elements of New Zealand music, and I think it's quite peculiarly New Zealand music, that give me a bit of a hint of this textural wash. One of them's Roy Montgomery. He's just released a beautiful thing called Landfall. him and the sort of textures and is there an intersection set or am i just thinking a dolphin is a shark
3: uh no i'm definitely familiar with roy's work i had actually heard some of that new album which is really cool you know i love that stuff those big oh. guitar textures Yeah, for quite a while i believe yeah yeah
0: writing and arranging first of all how do you write
3: that's an interesting question with soundtrack work and scores that i'm doing it's totally different i'm right to a brief and i just kind of have a deadline and have to get it done so it's like that kind of fear propels me through it but um, with my own material it's usually I sit down and create a texture like a wash or something on guitar or or pianos through lots of reverb and then I just keep layering you know hopefully a chord progression comes out of that or a melody so it's an interesting way to write but it's for me it's more about engaging an emotional space and trying to come up with a feeling that's how I start that's my starting point yeah and it's not always successful I mean for every idea I have there's a myriad of ideas that
0: never got through. There would be perhaps a temptation. You'd have to be self-aware enough to avoid the orchestral glory rush and going too far, if you know what I mean. Oh, I, all I that's, may have gone too far. Oh, that sounds so good and I'll just have more of it and you over-egg it? Yeah, I mean, there is a track on that
3: new album called We Danced in a Broken Sky, which kind of hits this big section where it's this explosion of sound. And um, originally I didn't I hadn't recorded drums or the big guitars or anything. It was just piano and strings, predominantly in textures. And it just sounded way too cheesy without, you know, so it was a matter of actually adding elements to make it a little bit less, I'm trying to find the word, a little bit more enjoyable for my ears.
0: Okay, I, th- I think it would be an unfair association with what you do and those wishy-washy, that new age waffle. Throw in a whale song and, you know, do your meditation or to the oh, sort you of you mean music. the music you hear when you're having a massage or, you know, the spa or something? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: You know, I definitely try and avoid that, for sure, um, but it's interesting you know, the genre of new age music has kind of come back and it's it's not as bad as it used to be. There's some amazing st- music coming out and it's, the connotation seems to have has changed a little bit, which is interesting. But it's really tricky to put my music in a genre. Um, I mean, the new album is heavily orchestral, but also, you know, it's also very ambient and has some big atmospheric textures and tracks that are just piano only. And so it's I always find it hard to put it into a... Um, genre, but it was described by a reviewer in the US
0: as um, being um, atmospheric chamber music, which I thought was a pretty good description. Yeah, yeah. It also has intriguing elements. Do you use the occasional sample? Your rules and regulations, if you have them, for sample using? Well, I record a lot of my own samples, so I
3: have a big sample library of material, you know, the atmospheres and things that I've recorded when traveling overseas, and I always take a field recorder with me, but there are some great places you can get, you know, samples that you can use, like if you're talking about atmospheric samples, do you mean like dialogue samples, etc? Or,
0: yeah, or actually yeah. more often things that are hanging way in the background, like, oh, I think it is it part six from your Standing in Silence album, which I got because of this particular track. And you oh, can yeah. hear children playing it in distance or something, it stretches your ear.
3: Yes, so that was the school down the road here in Miramar. We've moved, since moved, moved house up the hill, but um, that was my daughter's school. So you can hear it out the backyard. So every lunchtime I'd go and sit there and sat there with a, a recorder and I could hear the, the kids in the valley. And it, I thought that was actually how that track was sparked off. But also I think that album you, you're referring to is I'd just been in, uh, in Japan and um, was really inspired when I got back after being in Japan. It's a pretty inspiring place to be and um, lots of noises and sounds you know when you're walking around so that album to me definitely has a a kind of Japanese Tokyo-esque feel because you know I recorded a lot of samples in that city.
0: Okay, things you wouldn't use in the sample. If you had a damn whale call, you'd be put in the naughty corner, wouldn't you? You know,
3: I try and avoid whale calls and bird calls to a certain degree. But, you know, birds have featured on my albums. Which (laughs) ones? Our backyard is full of tuis and blackbirds quite often. It can be quite noisy in summer. So I, I, I love, the, love the Blackbirds. Yeah. There's lots of those here.
0: Yeah, Paul McCartney used one in a song. I forget what it was called. What was it, that <laughs> song called? <laughs> Not a bad song, that one.
3: Do we ever rock out? I rock out with my son. He's he's nine, and he's a pretty good guitar player, and he's really into rock music, like Pink Floyd and ACDC, and he's currently obsessed with Mark because He sits in his room and just works this stuff out for hours. The smart kids are really retro these days. Have you noticed? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? it doesn't, he doesn't listen to modern modern music, and it's he's finding this music on Spotify. I guess once you've found one genre, just you know, you get recommended other genres. But he he's found Van Halen. That's his latest thing. He, he stole one of my synths from the studio, and he's um he's worked out uh, Jump on the synth. He's pretty proud of himself.
0: <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, it's only anecdote, but I get the feeling that Led Zeppelin might be an up and coming band. I think you'll eventually get there, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what is the music that you love that is least like yours?
3: I listen to all sorts of music. I listen to everything. I love all kinds of genres, really, and I try and appreciate everything that I hear. Even even someone like Katy Perry, for example, which some people might despise, I have taught myself to appreciate some of the melodies and hooks and what's yeah. going on and the, and the production, etc. I, I try and not limit myself to one genre or two genres of music or whatever. I, I just try and let it all in. Yeah, so it's, it's actually hard to, okay, to pinpoint an artist.
0: The beautiful video for "Soma Dream,"
3: "Soma Dreams," yeah, and that's my my daughter actually. The story behind this: she's five and she came into the studio when we were working on that one. My wife was she played the piano parts on that one and and co-wrote some of the track. And she named it after herself. She, that's where the name came from. What's I, her name? She said it's out, it's, her name's Soma. Oh, really? <laughs> so she said, I, "It sounds like Soma's dream that I had last night, my own dream." So that, that's where uh, the title came
0: far from. Far out. Mm. Well, it's got that double meaning though, hasn't it? With you know, Soma being drugs, etc. Yeah. yes.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, Soma is actually
0: a, my wife's
3: a New Zealand Indian, but Soma is a Sanskrit word, a name actually for collectible me- uh, nectar of the moon. And I guess that's where maybe that's where the the word was came from. and and found its way into kind of english culture as Mm. as a drug i'm not sure anyway she was a drug to us when she was born she was you know we couldn't stop staring at her so the name seemed to fit
0: yeah that happens Mm. all right rian Sheehan, thanks so much and these tours they're reasonably rare things because you know you, you can't just get in the van can you and go around
3: no, well, actually, where the workshop helped us build some of the visual rig, so we have to freight that wherever we go. Mm. So, um, but yeah, so there's a little bit of work
0: required, but it's it's fun. The fun shows to put on. I bet they are. We'll just give the dates. Friday, the twelfth of October at the Michael Fowler Centre. Oh, that'll be flash. The twentieth and the twenty-first in the Nelson Theatre Royal, and that's part of the Nelson Arts Festival. And the twenty-sixth and twenty-seventh of October, Q Theatre in Auckland for what I imagine would be an immersive and, oh, very pretty thing. Well, hopefully.
3: If if they don't like the music, they'll certainly, I
0: think they'll enjoy looking at it. Okay, so it's a visual experience as well. Yeah. Yeah, it is. All right. The thing I like is that it's somehow I just pick up that there's something more to it than... Just the pretty textures. There's there's a depth to it. So, do you know what I mean? Can you uh, be better descriptive of that than me?
3: I guess it's we try. I mean, it's instrumental music. So, there's no songs, you know, but um, there are vocals. But it's yeah. we try and put people in a in a, a space. I guess it's kind of like a, these nostalgic soundscapes and using you know lots of textures and strings and piano and. Try and create something that's emotionally resonant, a place that people can kind of reflect, and I guess off, you know, visually and with their ears. So it's kind of hard to to put into words, but um, it's we're trying to put on a show that's um, interesting, and emotive, and um, enjoyable at the same time.
0: As much improvised, or you've got this thing organised.
3: Not much of it's improvised at all. Oh, good for you. That, no, it's actually, everything is interconnected with the visual integration, so it's all very, it's all very technical, actually, and um, so everything you're hearing really is quite well rehearsed. And although you probably wouldn't realise it with some of it. I mean, it's just these big atmospheric washes sometimes, and other times it's more um, orchestral sounding pieces of music. But Yeah. improv that can be such a copy. Anyway. (laughs) I've never been good at improv myself, but I'm sure some of the the band would love to improv, but... Yeah, I don't let them.
0: No, don't let them. The word jam makes me shudder. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Alright, Rian Sheehan, thanks so much, and the new album, Quiet Divide. It's a beautiful thing. Do go have a look at the video, So Dreams. Now we know a little of the story behind it, and it's a lovely watch and a lovely listen. So, Rian Cheon, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Greg. To the info burst at the top of the hour, the final missing shipwreck tale to be added to the archive. We're pretty sure it will be complete after the story of the Edmund Fitzgerald, the nominal shipwreck tale, f- from the theme's point of view anyway. Here's New Sport and Weather. It's 11 o'clock.